You're listening to Star Trek, the Undiscovered Podcast. Is on the edge of destruction. We cannot survive unless a way can be found to respond to the problem. The key to saving the future. Spock, you're talking about the end of every life on Earth. Can be found only in the past. We're going to attempt time travel. Sulu, take us home. These are the voyages of the crew of the Starship Enterprise. Judging by the pollution content of the atmosphere, I believe we have arrived at the latter half of the 20th century. Stardate, 1986. San Francisco. Our own world is waiting for us to save it. They have 24 hours. Everybody remember where we parked. Break up. To complete their mission. It looked like a cadet review. He will beam in tonight, collect the photons and beam out. I want you all to be very careful. Without being discovered. We have an intruder. All right, who are you? You're not exactly catching us at our best. That much is certain. This is an extremely primitive and paranoid culture. What does it mean, exact change? Many of their customs will doubtless take us by surprise. We're ready for beam out. My transporter power is down to minimal. I've got to bring in one at a time. You're from outer space. No, I'm from Iowa. I only work in outer space. Let's do our job and get out of here. Free! Take off, can you hear me? I've lost it. Who are you? You can't. Our next stop is the 23rd century. Full power now, sir. Shields at maximum. Steady. Hold on tight, lassie. Can we make breakaway speed? That's all I can give you! Book eight. Book nine. Now. Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home. Good evening, everybody, and thank you for joining us once again. Well, if you want to talk about Murphy's Law, that is tonight's episode. Because as I said in the last show, I even said in the last show, I might be jinxing myself by announcing what is coming up next. But we have semi what we promised tonight. Because originally this was a non-Trek watcher watches Star Trek episode in which we would review Star Trek for The Voyage Home with someone who has not seen Star Trek before, but that person couldn't make it. And then another guest couldn't make it. And then our regular uh, sound person extraordinaire, DJ Nick, had internet problems, and he couldn't make it. The show was doomed until it wasn't anymore, and it must go on. So with myself, and we're going to meet our two guests tonight. Originally, none of the regular panelists were with us tonight because it was a panel full of guests. But now it's just a chill, nice show with myself and my two guests. First, let's meet the veteran who has been with us once before. Holly McMiller is here. What's happening tonight, Holly? Uh, not too much. Keeping my fingers crossed. <laughs> I'm <laughs> glad to be back on the deck. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> that there could be some kind of there could be some kind of weather outage going on right now. Now, now let's meet our first timer here tonight. Um, a man who directed me in my feature film debut, The Long Island Project, joining us tonight to discuss his favorite Star Trek film and probably a lot of many others too. Eric Norcross, what's up tonight, Eric? How you doing, Greg? Good to see you again. Hi, Holly. Hey. Good to meet hey, you. Eric. Good to meet you, too. It's good to see you, Eric. And the aforementioned, of course, we are talking tonight about Star Trek for The Voyage Home. And when I first announced this podcast and said the movies, that one of the things we're going to be doing is reviewing the films, even if it's out of order, everyone said, I want to do Star Trek Four. I want to do Star Trek Four. Well, I strategically had to pick who was doing this episode, and, well, we have half of them here right now. So let's get started. So Star Trek for The Voyage Home from 1986. It was directed by Leonard Nimoy, with a screenplay by Steve Mearson, Peter Kreitz, Nicholas Meyer, and Harv Bennett, with a story by Harv Bennett and Leonard Nimoy, Spock himself. It was produced by Harv Bennett with a score by Leonard Rosenman. And to put it in today's money, this movie cost $26 million to make and grossed $133 million at the box office. So, And that was also in 1986. So it's made its money back and then some folks. I should mention my shout out before we start to DJ Nick because I am doing it in the style of Happiness and Darkness, the superhero movie podcast, and Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast. But what am I really doing when I say that? Check out those podcasts when you can. So with Star Trek Four, getting into general impressions and starting with you, Holly, what are your general impressions of oh, Star yeah. Trek Voyage Home? This is has to be my favorite out of the classic Trek crew movie. I have very vague memories of seeing this when it opened with my parents because we had a tradition growing up that we would go to Green Bay and do our Thanksgiving Black Friday shopping. Well, we went a day early and we actually went to go see it in the theaters. <laughs> so I can remember sitting and watching it and just being in awe and hearing Scotty, there be whales, Captain, <laughs> <laughs> and all that. So I, I love this. And just to split it up with the crew and the teams, which I know we'll get into. Yes. And then a quick question for you. What was your Star Trek position at the point when you first saw it? Was it you have been watching the original series and maybe saw the other movies? Or was it just your first foray into Star Trek completely? Um, I had seen some of the original series because dad showed me some of those and then there were some reruns. And then I have vague memories of seeing um, Star Trek Three: The Search mm. for Spock. So uh, I knew the crew <laughs> and okay. some of the story. Well, fair enough, fair enough. Now, mm -hmm. Eric, um, you are, of course, a filmmaker, and you love this movie for probably more than just the surface of it. So what are your general impressions of Star Trek for The Voyage Home? Well, you know, I first saw this in the 80s when I was just a kid, um, and it was the only thing of Star Trek I ever knew for a long time. Um, you know, my dad, the way our movie collection worked at home was my dad would rent movies from the video store, record them onto VHS tapes, and he'd have like three or four on, a, on each tape, but he just did it willy nilly. He didn't like to, oh, this tape has the Indiana Jones trilogy. This, this tape has Star Wars. It was like, I only ever knew this movie from Star Trek 
and The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. I never saw the original Star Wars. I never saw the first couple of Star Treks. I never watched the original show. I only knew this as a standalone movie. And as a standalone movie, it stuck with me over the years. And it influenced my direction as an academic later in life. Yes, I a lot of of kids had watched this movie. It's funny because I had that with Police Academy for, and this is Star Trek for. And yeah. so for my <laughs> I never saw the first Police Academy because of the same <laughs> I'm right in the same boat with the two of you. If if I did see the search for Spock, it was in the theater anyway. It was I was so young I couldn't remember. But in terms of Star Trek Four, it was my first memory of seeing a Star Trek film in the theater. Just like you, Holly, I went with my parents, went with my sister. We went as a whole family. And let's see, being that I was seven years old, and I liked the TV series certainly, but I was, I was about the same age. Yeah, I was afraid that, like, the search for Spock, because I didn't appreciate the writing yet, like, what if I was going to be bored by this movie? And, of course, as a seven-year-old kid, that was a possibility, but it just isn't so with this movie. This is a crowd-pleasing, just everyone, I just remember how surprised everyone was that Star Trek went in a direction of a adventure a time travel adventure comedy. Mm -hmm. And then over the years subsequently, as I became, you know, more of a fan and accustomed to the entire Star Trek zeitgeist that there is, this was just a perfect ending to two pretty dark films. And I really appreciated how later as I, I mean, I saw this movie since then uh, countless times and I did a rewatch to do this review. At first, I was going to moderate. We're going to get to that in one second. Um, at first, I was going to moderate, of course, but now I get to review with you guys. Um, and I, I really just, it's such a crowd-pleasing, enjoyable, different thing for Star Trek. I don't think they really ever re went this route again until, I mean, you could see little pieces of cute humor here and there in the Star Treks that followed but nothing like this. These are strangers in a strange land. I just love that concept. And they are, of course, the brilliant crew of the Star Trek Enterprise, but bumbling through this whole situation that has uh, become of them. But a great way to end this trilogy in terms of a nice light ending. And, you know, they really screwed up in the movie that, that preceded this in this Search for stuff that they blew up the Enterprise. They had no choice. Um, how the hell were they going to be forgiven for this? Well, I guess they had to save the world. Okay, folks, moving on, however, as I said at the top of the show, this was a series of Murphy's Law, and we had a guests and technical issues and stuff that, that went into this episode. And when we started the show at the top, we had Holly, we had Eric, but we have a latecomer guest who made it by hook or by crook just in time to give his general impressions of the film. Usually I'd be going last, but he is going to... Uh, oh, and look at that. As I look at the list, he's actually going to go first next. A first for movie reviews like this. Let's welcome Robert Youngren, another alumni of the project. What's up, Robert? Okay, it took me a while to get on. I really appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, it was Eric. I was about to throw you off. Eric, yeah. actually. 
Yeah. That's, so this is like a reunion anyway, the three of us, and, you know, with the Long Island Project, this is like really kind of cool. Long Island Project. Check it out. That's on YouTube, isn't it? Let's check. Everybody, go check that out. Um, Robert, what are your general impressions of Star Trek okay. for the Voyage Home? I, I The first film, uh, I think a lot of people were disappointed. And, you yeah, know, I'm really disappointed. Uh, I love the uh, the refit Enterprise. It's a beautiful exterior, interior. I thought, eh, uh, a, lot of, a lot of issues with it. But uh, my favorite was the Klingon coming into the storm cloud. And, of course, that was my absolute, one of my absolute favorite scenes of all time. Um, uh, Wrath Bacon is still my favorite. You know, that was absolute favorite. Uh, Search for Spock. Eh. Um, this movie, because at the time I was married, and I wanted to go see every Star Trek movie, which I had done because I grew up on the series. And I wanted to go see this movie. And I, I said, hey, would you go with me? She goes, I don't really like Star Trek. But she went. And believe it or not, the whole theater was full of a lot of people that don't really watch Star Trek. I think a lot of people go to make the person that's in the family that loves the show to make them yeah. happy. But this movie was different because it was actually a fun movie. Like you said, it, it was like it was just a comedy show. You know, it, it touched it all. In the original series, they always had Bones and Spock with their conflicts and they kind of touched on all that. And it, it was just a lot of fun to watch. My favorite scene for the film was when they're on the bus with the kid with the, with the, oh, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. the bus. And, you know, they're trying to get him, you know, you know, you know they just turn that noise off and the guy's losing the finger and Spock's like, you know, it's like he does the Vulcan, the Vulcan, you know, the hand thing and he knocks the guy and the whole bus goes nuts. That was just really funny. That was like one of my favorite scenes in a movie, you know? Yeah. So, I really enjoyed the film, though it was funny. But also, uh, Gene Roddenberry is sort of like a Rod Serling of the time because they do messages in their films, uh, they, you know, in their storylines. Everything's about modern day, um, you know, events, you know, whether it be racism or it be whatever it is. In this case, they're talking about the oceans and our disappearing whales, which is an endangered species. And they they kind of touch base on it like in the future here comes this probe that can't talk to anybody because the 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 whales have died off since they were here last and they came back and they couldn't talk to them so just tearing up the earth so that was like a really great concept i thought yeah yeah that was star trek at its best and uh i think leonard nimoy had a very clear vision of okay we have a situation we have to get the crew out of how do we figure out how to make this you know the, the perfect cherry on top of this trilogy, the two, three, four trilogy. So getting into our characters here, um, there aren't really that many characters to talk about, but basically essentially the crew of the Enterprise. So starting with William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy reprising their roles as Kirk and Spock, I really found them to be like the Mutton Jeff lead <laughs> team of this movie where it's usually, though, the trio of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. In this movie, it's all about Kirk and Spock. So starting with you, Robert, as I promised, what did you feel about the position of Kirk and Spock in this movie and what they had to do? There you go. So remember that Spock is now just becoming Spock again because, you know, he didn't, mm. you know, he's basically been reborn, which was kind of a weird concept because it's like the guy died and all of a sudden they do this whole Genesis thing and, now he's back and they're trying to get him to be the way he was. Now he's this mature guy. He looks the way he did, but he just didn't have all his marbles yet. So, you know, Kirk and him, they, 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 you know, it was just, 
I thought they had great chemistry. I enjoyed the character, you know, the way they played off each other. I thought it was fun. It felt natural. Um, I really think they, you know, I thought Spock was awesome. You know, Kirk was Kirk. But I thought I really enjoyed Spock's, you know, characterizations, you know, with the colorful menopause and, the, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, do you want a tan? No. And she, she's the girl asks if they want dinner. She says, you want a tan? And Kirk goes, yes. Spock goes, no, no, yes, no. And then he goes, yeah. yeah. You know, so it was just great the way they played off each other. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it was uh, very much a comical Spock in this one without in any way hurting the character with a perfect explanation as to why it's happening. So, Eric, what were your thoughts on the roles of Kirk and Spock in this adventure? I would definitely agree with Robert on everything he said, but one of the things that I really liked that they did with them is these are guys, These two are supposed to be the leaders who are the most mature and most experienced and most developed, yet they so easily started cursing with one another the moment they heard these words. And for the rest of the movie, it's hell and damn constantly coming out of their mouths, demonstrating how addictive cursing can get, even for these highly <laughs> yeah. developed intelligences. Polly, you're up with yes. Kirk and Spock. Oh, th this, the trouble duel, just I mean, you feel sorry for the love interest when she gets him in the truck and trying to get to the bottom of the story and then Spock's in the middle and it's just like, oh boy, what did I get myself into here? Because I think Spock can kind of see what's going on. But then too, with the colorful metaphors and all that, Spock's kind of getting to see the human side and the human aspect and it's just like, hey, Sometimes this isn't all that bad. I don't have to keep the Vulcan cool. So, and just the scene too in the bookshop with the glasses <laughs> and the money. Wasn't that the gift for Doctor? Was it? He won't know. He'll get him again in how many number of years when we get back. I'm going to agree with all of you. It's a very much a stranger in a strange land uh, film. Mm -hmm. And I think with Spock, um, he ha he never really was Kirk's sidekick, no. per se. But in this movie, he is. In this movie, it's, I've got it all together. I'm still, you know, macho, charming James T. Kirk. But with him is this, 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 it's such a different view of Spock where he's still so brilliant, but just isn't there yet with his mind developing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just thought it was really good. Um, okay, so in terms of the rest of the cast, some Star Trek movies have a really big cast outside of the crew, but in this one, they really gave the crew more to do and more things to, I guess you could say, shine on the mission. And in this case, you, they broke up into two teams. You had Walter Koning and Nichelle Nichols as Team One, Chekhov and Uhura. And you had DeForest Kelly, James Duan, and George Takei as McCoy, Scotty, and Sulu. But we're going to start with Chekhov and Uhura and their mission in the film. And we're going to start with you, Eric. What did you make of them and their part? They were my favorite to track, actually. Um, I think the fact that it's a... a a Reagan era film and Chekhov's accent make it comedy gold. Okay. I, I think that the blank stare of the police officer who's completely speechless that this Russian is asking where the nuclear vessels are. 
uh, is yeah. the funniest thing to come out of the 1980s. And uh, there's, there's an interesting scene that I, I posted in the in our chat thread where a woman actually gives some directions to Alameda. <laughs> and the I don't know if you know this, but she was part of an on, extra. She, yeah, she wasn't an extra until she was hired. <laughs> but what happened was she had her car towed by the production because they needed to make room for their trucks. And she yeah. couldn't afford to go get her car back. So Leonard Nimoy hired her into that role so she could buy her car back essentially oh and my goodness and wow. she, yeah and she improvised that whole thing so if you watch it again you'll see that Chekhov and Yohora are kind of caught off guard by her actually talking they're like what is this extra talking to us how dare she but then they played along with it and yeah Leonard Nimoy kept it because it felt so natural it was it really yeah. did yeah Holly. Yes. Oh, I mean, I love the team up of them. They're both trying to help each other out. And the whole nuclear wealth of things, I'm just surprised that they didn't land in jail quicker than <laughs> I mean, just at the cop and you're asking where the nuclear vessels vessels are. Um, hmm, red flags, but you know, that was before 9-11, so probably not too much of a concern, but just a real cool, cool team up. Yeah, it was a good team up. Um, and, the, you know, you pointed out how Chekhov is a Russian. I knew they were making statements about the nuclear aspect of it, but the fact that he was a Russian. Robert, what did you make, make of this pair? I thought they were awesome. I thought they were funny. I think Chekhov kind of stole it. Horror was a straight person. And, mm -hmm. you know, he's like, you know, with his bad accent. And of course, you know, when it, after they get the uh, what they get, they need in the uh, with those devices what they needed from the atomic stuff, and they they try to get out of there. And you knew there was going to be a problem. I didn't think they were both going to get out when I saw the film, but of course, Ohura gets out, and of course, Chekhov gets stuck there. And then, of course, when they catch him, he's totally like, you know, he's out to lunch, and they're just looking at him like, "How the hell did you get in here?" And he's like giving dumb answers. It was just great. I really enjoyed it. I thought they were both funny. Yeah, um, they had to have that save Chekhov from the hospital for the big final comic mm. event mm -hmm. before they finally went to like serious stuff there. Yeah. I'm going to agree with you all of you. I don't really have anything to add to that, except I probably would have liked to see more of Uhura, except that it was, she was a little bit of a plot device when she left because it's like, how can they keep the humor going with Uhura there? Mm -hmm. And and they would have two people to interrogate. I don't know whether they tried that in the script or not, but it then became the, you know, the comedy of errors getting uh, Chekhov out of the hospital. Um, and Uhura, you know, just, they beamed her out. She was okay. And so a little bit of a complaint there, but it's a very minor complaint. Okay, now you have McCoy, Scotty, and Sulu. Um, but it really became a McCoy and Scotty and Sulu kind of went and did his own thing, but they still were sent as one team. So Holly, starting with you, what did you make of these three? Oh my goodness. I mean, just the interplay between Scotty and McCoy and them finagling their way into the, one of my favorite and most epic scenes, the company to get the, transparent steel to hold the whales i mean just 
brilliant. And McCoy just sheer con job getting them in. And it's like, and then the scene with the computer. <laughs> and it's like, do you want me to just delete this? <laughs> no, 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 no. We're good. We're good. We're good. <laughs> I'm going to agree with you there. Uh, next up, we have Eric. What did you make of this trio? I thought they were necessary for the plot. I don't think they contributed much to the, the comedy, except in terms of um, the interaction they had with the Mac computer. I thought that was an interesting choice that they were so far ahead that they didn't know how old computers were. Um, don't 100% believe it, but one interesting thing about it, and I'm full of facts here, is uh, all the graphics that appeared on the Mac computer, because they were using a Mac computer, were actually designed on a Windows computer. And a lot of uh, people in the computer orbit, I guess, find that funny. I don't know why. They just do. But um, <laughs> it's silly. It's, it's, it's absolutely silly. But what's one interesting thing, though, is he gave him the code for transparent aluminum. And the year J.J. Abrams' first movie came out uh, in 2009, they actually invented transparent aluminum. So wow. that's very interesting. And Robert, uh, a take your take on uh, the role of McCoy and Scotty and Sulu. Yeah, I thought Sulu didn't really do a lot. But he right. was a great guy, but he was good. I mean, the whole cast was great. But the I really enjoyed the the play between you know, McCoy and, and Scotty. I just thought they were like they were really funny. You know, I thought they, uh, you know. I, I always liked Scotty. I always thought Scotty had a great character, and he, he was always a kind of a loose guy, whether it be in the original show where he would get drunk all the time and just like to party it up and have fun. And uh, and he was really enjoying himself. And, of course, you know, and, of course, again, the straight guy would be McCoy trying to play it off straight. Like, don't hey, don't get into the role so much. I thought that was kind of a funny acting joke. But um, it was really – and, you know, again, with the computer thing, I remember seeing that, even watching when it first came out, saying, well, you know, I, I, I get it. This movie's geared for really non-Trekkies. Really was. I, I really think it was, you know, for the diehard science fiction guys. It's not. It really wasn't. You know, that believable where he wouldn't know. Uh, and then of course he goes right to the keyboard. He's a master typer. So, um, yeah, that, that kind of stuff. But but I don't care. I really enjoyed it. it. Was fun to watch, and 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 he got the point across. And again, the graphics for that computer, I wouldn't. I don't think it would have worked in those days. You know, with that computer because. And we had those computers back in the day. They weren't very good. And uh, but it was, but you know, just going with it and the technology and and, you know, and Scotty is a great engineer. So you go with it, you know. But I really I, I thought they were funny as hell. Yeah, it seems that they gave each member of the crew because once again, it, it, and and McCoy this time. McCoy is usually part of the Kirk Spock McCoy trio. But right. this time, this movie really belonged to Kirk Spock and the character we're going to talk about next. It's really like, you know, the, the character we're going to talk about next had more to do with the story than the rest of the Enterprise crew other than Kirk and Spock. Um, and, of course, Spock had his side story of he's learning everything again. In terms of McCoy, Scotty, and Sulu, yes, correct. Sulu really didn't do anything, but they gave him and they gave every crew member something that was of importance to the mission, which never happened right. before. Then and they gave us the um, 
the sign of things to come at the end when they're getting, spoiler alert, when they're getting the Enterprise back and they're flying into it, Sulu is hoping for Excelsior. And as we know, the most he ever got to do was in Star Trek 60 Undiscovered Country, in which he was the captain of the Excelsior. So it was that little foreshadowing that we got there um, of Sulu. And of course, nobody could fly the, you know, fly the ship like him. He had to fly a foreign enemy ship and get them back in time. So I'd say he did a good job with that. In terms of McCoy and Scotty, I even remember seeing it as a kid. I also went to this twice in the theater, once with my mom and once with my friends to uh, this, I believe it was the 35th anniversary in 2021, I want to say. And so, again, it was it's for Trekkies. And we're going to be talking about all the movies eventually. And uh, the next show is scheduled to talk about all the movies. But yes, Robert, I do agree with you that they wanted to come up with a Trek movie that everyone could enjoy. And I think they really found it with this because it does have enough. I mean, the wrath of Khan had the, the first in this trilogy had the advantage of just being so good that it appealed to non Trekkies, but then came search for Spock, which was a terrific story, but not good for non Trekkies at all. Mm -hmm. I would say, but they did that with star Trek four. And I got to give, uh, props to the McCoy and Scotty teaming for just having what I feel was the funniest scene. But after that, they kind of just went through the motions. It's true. Which brings me to the final character that we're going to discuss. This movie's very short on characters. And after we talk about her, we're going to discuss why that's a possibility. And that is Catherine Hicks as Jillian, um, in which I thought she did a great job. And when we get to me, we'll talk about that. Starting with you, Eric. What are your impressions of Jillian in this movie? I mean, she was a good fish out of water uh, character to sort of introduce the non-Trekkie parts of the audience into all of the workings. So she's sort of the access point for anybody who doesn't already know what's going on. Um, At the same time, um, I do wonder, and I've always wondered for years, is she the reason, because she, spoiler alert, she comes back to the future with them. Uh, is she the reason that all starships now have a cetacean ops? I, I find that interesting and, and an important question. I would imagine so. Maybe. Yeah. yeah, Robert, you're up. <laughs> yes, I thought she did a great job. I, I liked her character. Again, the uh, Captain Kirk had to have some kind of romantic interest. <laughs> they always seem to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I thought, I, I thought her character was great. They couldn't have done it without her character. And... Uh, it's amazing that, you know, her and Kirk just hit it off so well. And I don't know. I, I thought she did a great job. It was great. You, you needed that character to keep the story going because they couldn't have done it without her. That's pretty much yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Holly, give your input on Jillian because I have something uh, to say about her. Yeah. yeah. She's, I mean, she's kind of the linchpin because they kind of realized that they needed the whales. She had the whales. She knew where they were. And she was just like, she didn't know how to tell them, hey, there's a problem because if they don't get free, we're going to have some issues. And like, well, hey, we can help you. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. And I mean, everything just happened to be the perfect storm at the right time to make things the way they were. So, and just her being able to stand toe to toe with Kirk and Kirk just, you know, kind of appreciating that fact. And like I said, with Spock's sitting in the middle and he kind of looks at him it's like 
okay, I think he's finally met his match. I'm just going to sit here and eat popcorn <laughs> and see how it goes. <laughs> what I would say about Jillian is at first I know, Eric, you might know that it was originally going to be a role for Eddie Murphy. What? Believe what? it or not. Yeah. Oh, believe yeah. it or not. Wow. Because Eddie Murphy was a big Trek fan and they were figuring out a way. He was the biggest star. They would have sold even more tickets. I'm kind of happy it didn't happen that way. Because yeah. then what we got was a strong, quote unquote, damsel in distress. Usually there's a damsel in distress in like every movie. And I appreciated that she was a strong and independent character who was so strong and independent. She decided to go back to the future with them because they needed her. And like she had, as Harrison Ford says about Han Solo, no mama, no papa. Clearly her life was that uh, uh, museum and the whales. And so she went to be with them. And hey, she was right. She figured out more so than Kirk that they needed a whale biologist in the 23rd century. Something I liked about this particular, quote, love interest for Kirk is that she was a love interest for Kirk at the same time not being one. And they mm -hmm. left that part of this strong female character alone. Now, was there an implication something happened between them? Absolutely, 100%. That when mm -hmm. we, didn't, we didn't see on screen. However, they didn't make it about that. They didn't make it about, oh, here's Kirk's new flame. And I love the scene in the in the pizzeria where they're, you know, where he's telling her the story and she's, you know, part of her is believing it. What do you guys think? The part of her oh, yeah. is, oh. this is the only explanation for this. Yeah, uh -huh. hands down. I mean, I, I grew up on the coast of Maine, so I've known a lot of marine biologists. And I grew up yeah. thinking they just, like, recruited somebody from our community. Like, she was a thousand percent a marine biologist. And uh, it made sense, too, that she would want to go back to be with George and Gracie because a lot of these people get really attached to their work. <laughs> yeah. um, that part of it, that makes yeah. sense to me. Like, yeah, that was probably I, more believable than any other aspect of the, of the movie. Yeah, I, I really did like this character. And I liked her even more as time went on in that's what you were looking at. And she was the voice because we're going to get to this. This is a movie that we're done already discussing the characters because usually in the in the films there's a huge antagonist that's played by you know a great classic actor like Ricardo Montalban and Christopher Lloyd before this, but this time this movie had something to say and we touched a little bit about okay what was going on with Wales at the time the things that the, the commentaries that Star Trek used to always make came up here. Um, and the fact that, um, you know, they even gave a little uh, nod to the nuclear weapons problem that was happening back then. Um, but the environment and the whales played a big thing. And Eric, you and I had actually talked about that. In, in fact, um, so I'll start with you here, Eric, uh, because that's a perfect segue to this movie is trying to say something. And it does have an antagonist, even if you do not see it. And it ain't the probe. Eric, talk about what is the underlying subtext of this movie and who's the real antagonist of it? Well, we're the antagonists, exactly. people living in the 20th and 21st century. Uh, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I went back to college in my 30s. I shut down my production business and I went back to school to study 
uh, largely science fiction and literary form. And I used to give talks at some of the academic conferences on the socio-political parallels in science fiction. And this movie, because of the underlying themes, was my primary example of what science fiction can accomplish. Uh, when this movie was made, the humpback whale was on the extinct species list. And this movie resulted in so many donations to Greenpeace and advocacy to the government that by the time we're recording this podcast in 2023, humpback whales are no longer on the extinct list. And this movie is the main reason for that. I mean, that's some serious power right there. Um, you know, when Leonard Nimoy went into this, he went into it to make like a laid back fun movie because the other ones were so dark. Um, and to, to come out with a movie that can actually literally change the world for the better, that's incredible science fiction making. Uh, Isaac Asimov has a great quote uh, about science fiction that I, I just want to say on this podcast. Uh, and that's that... Um, Individual science fiction stories might seem as trivial as ever to the blinded critics and philosophers of today, but the core of science fiction, its essence, has become crucial to our salvation if we are to be saved at all. And this movie demonstrates how crucial it is. Thank you, Eric. That was very well said. And, and it's also Star Trek in a nutshell. And that's probably another reason why this movie is so beloved by all because mm -hmm. it does that and more. I mean, this movie's practically up there. We know that Star Wars and Star Trek have different kinds of fandoms. I'll just put it that way. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes, there's fans of both, of course, and especially more nowadays than in the past. But this movie did had that kind of impact in the Star Trek world the way that the first Star Wars movie did for everyone else. This movie wowed people, and that certainly is part of it, Eric, what happened there. Robert, mm -hmm. can you follow Eric? <laughs> you can't top what Eric just did. Uh, he was absolutely yeah. sent on. Uh, I said that in the beginning, that Gene Roddenberry was one, uh, he dealt with cultural issues. Uh, the original show, you had a black woman, you had an Asian, you had a Russian, everybody on the bridge, all equal. And he always dealt with issues, even a few of the episodes um, always dealt with, you know, racism or, you know, different, different issues that were going on at the time. Um, so, and again, with the humpback worlds, they were on the endangered species uh, list. And people, really, people in general, we want to do the right thing. So when people know there's something wrong, people do the best they can to help out. And I think that movie just kind of brought it to the forefront and people wanted to help. And it, it definitely got a message out there because I don't think people really are aware of how much we are destroying our environment. Mm -hmm. To this day as well. Holly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what Eric said. I agree with what Robert said. I mean, it was just, you know, a wake-up call and because of Gene's history with the TV show and that a lot of people it's like okay if he put a message in there we need to pay attention because usually it was a major issue at the time it's like hey if he's writing about it and putting it out there it's something that's if we don't do something about it we're going to be in a whole more world of trouble than what we're actually at and try to turn things around if possible 
Yeah, there there isn't much more to say. I mean, I remember seeing yeah. it at seven years old and remembering that. And that's that's that also just kind of sums up this movie as it made you laugh, it made you think, it made you cry, it was exciting, it was funny, it was, you know, still parts where you're on your ed- edge of your seat. It was it, it was even though it was so unique as a Star Trek film slash Star Trek adventure, it encompassed everything Star Trek is. And I think I'll leave it at that. That's the perfect final word for this film. So getting into ratings, Robert, starting with you, what would you give Star Trek for the voyage home out of 10? Uh, out of 10? Or is it like my overall? Well, I'm a big fan of the whole series. Uh, I think this is, this is not my favorite film, but it's definitely you know a really good film. I'd give it at least an 8. All right. Um, Eric. Ten. Ten. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, th- ten. That, that's very high praise. Oh, wow. Yeah. Awesome. 100%. And yeah. and Holly. Uh nine and a half. I'm edging <laughs> towards ten. I mean, just it's got everything. <laughs> I mean, I kind of say this and um first contact kind of have a kind of a mirror image of the coin, kind of in a way. Mm. Well, you know, the, the reason I'm rating it that high is because it's the movie I would have wanted to make if I was making a Star Trek movie. I wouldn't have made uh, the first couple of movies that they did because uh, I just wouldn't have been invested in the story. But this one I'm invested in and I know how to film maritime things. And for example, the ship, that's it, the, that the whaling ship is like, I know that that's not a whaling ship. It's a trawler that they put a freaking gun on the front of it, a harpoon on the front of it. But you could <laughs> like, I don't know if you could tell, but I could tell that that thing is not capable of processing one humpback whale, let alone two. And so <laughs> like, that's the movie I would want to make. And uh, that's why it's a 10. If, if I want to do it, it's a 10. <laughs> well, you, you, you are from new England. So if yeah. anybody was going to make this film other than Leonard Nimoy, it'll be you. You know, you Who's guys from New England. He's also from New England. Oh, is Leonard Nimoy from New England? He's a Boston kid. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> um, I knew Shatner was a Canuck, but okay. So <laughs> it's really, for me, an eight and a half, but I appreciate you giving it a 10, Eric, because it's not just, it doesn't only encompass a good Star Trek story, but a good film. And if you're looking at it from the point of view of what films are supposed to do, this did it. Yeah, as I said earlier, this was all I knew of Star Trek for at least the first 15 years of my life. Wow. Um, I saw it only as a standalone film that we just had for some freaking reason. Right. Probably because my dad liked boats too. Like, <laughs> and so I just saw it as, as a standalone movie. Yeah. Um, great stuff, guys. So getting into plugs, Holly, when you are not here on a Comedy of Errors <laughs> Star Trek The Undiscovered Podcast episode where everything can go wrong d- did, um, where can folks find you? Well, you can find me as one-fifth of the Five-ish Fangirls podcast. We're on the fiveishfangirls.com where you can find all our pertinent information. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and now threads at hollymac underscore 79. Great stuff. Um, Eric, when you're not here talking about your favorite Star Trek film, where can folks find you? Uh, primarily functioning on YouTube. Uh, my handle is Eric Norcross, and 
I also have a podcast, the Eric Norcross Podcast, which has over 100 episodes of me ranting and raving about everything from art to science to UFOs. Awesome. Mr. Robert Youngren, where can folks find you? Basically just on Facebook. I don't have a website yet, but I'm working on it. So just find me on Facebook. Well, my awesome. Why don't you spell your name for people, Robert? Uh, your last name, just so people could find you. Sure. It's Robert Youngren, Y-O-U-N-G-R-E-N. Awesome. Okay, well, I actually have a couple of plugs. So first, yourcustomjingle.com is in <laughs> progress of writing a, a personalized Star Trek song for a winner who submitted by email something in the Star Trek universe that they want to hear a song about. Aaron at yourcustomjingle.com is working on that. So what is yourcustomjingle.com? Go to yourcustomjingle.com and look at what he does. So if you need a jingle, but if you need a personalized song, so this is amazing, something like Valentine's Day, and you've got something to say and you want to say it in song form, submit it to Aaron. If you uh, are a fan of tuna fish, as John Seymour brought up a couple of shows back, he will write you a song about tuna fish, but you go, you pick the genre. He has three questions, merely three questions about what you want to hear in your song and he will do it. And it's anything and everything going on. That's your custom So while we do premiere the song on our season finale next time, uh, he is still running the promotion where if you put in the code star Trek 20, he will take 20% off your order. So go check him out, yourcustomjingle.com, spelt exactly as it sounds. On Twitter, at yourcustomjingle, but that's Y-R, custom jingle. And check it out, see what he does. Look at these personalized songs or jingles you can get, and you want one, Star Trek 20, he takes 20% off. I also must promote The Hour of Comics is Upon Us, the new podcast from John Seymour, Keith Bliss, and Jason Gurren. Of course, you've heard them on all these podcasts, a lot of the podcasts in the family. You've heard all three of them. Well, now they have their own show that's a trio talking about comic books, anything and everything. I did the first episode where we discussed X-Men versus Avengers. You can hear the first four episodes on the Bullshit Hour with John Seymour platform, but... You could check out the, uh, and I think those episodes, though, are going on the platform, but keep an eye out for it. The Hour of Comics is Upon Us with John Seymour, Keith Bliss, and Jason Gurren. We will presumably see you next time with guest Sean Faust talking about all the movies as a whole, breaking them down into the three generations of Star Trek movies that there are, and that is, folks, our season finale. We've been doing this for six months, and we're almost up with our first season. Thank you once again to our guests, Eric Norcross, Robert Youngren, Holly McMiller. We hope to see you all again. We're going to end transmission now, but first, handing it over to Dan Martin, where he can tell us, he can tell you where you can find the team. Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening to Star Trek The Undiscovered Podcast. Find our team members, Greg Vorob, on Facebook, G-R-E-G-V-O-R-O-B on YouTube at Greg Vorob, on Twitter at Greg underscore Vorob. Also, check out MSV Podcast Presents The Fake and the Whimsy. Daniel Hawley on Facebook, 
H-U-L-L-E-Y, and on Twitter at bland underscore dull underscore don't. Ken Radner on Facebook, K-E-N-R-A-D-N-E-R. And me, Dan Martin, at BasemanDanMartin3700 on YouTube. And you can also join me on WHMI.com weeknights, 7 p.m. to 10 Eastern Time, and Saturday afternoons, 3 p.m. to 7 Eastern Time. Livingston County's own Classic Hits. Find this podcast on Facebook at the groups Star Trek Fans United and Star Trek The Undiscovered Podcast. Like us on Facebook at Star Trek The Undiscovered Podcast. On Twitter at STTU Podcast. Or shoot us an email to sttupodcast at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening to Star Trek The Undiscovered Podcast. And until next time, live long and prosper.